Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Today, we're turning our attention to France. This weekend, France will hold the final round of its presidential election with incumbent Emmanuel Macron facing off against far-right challenger Marine Le Pen in a repeat of the previous contest in 2017. While Macron received the most votes in the first round and seems favored to come out on top again, polls suggest that Le Pen nonetheless remains firmly in contention. The possibility of a Le Pen presidency poses major concerns for the future of the European Union and the transatlantic alliance, given her expressed desire to take actions such as leaving NATO's integrated military command, seeking rapprochement with Russia, and enshrining the supremacy of French legislation over EU law. Another term for Macron, by contrast, would likely see a continuation of his strong pro-European and internationalist vision for France. As we look ahead to the high stakes political event this weekend, we're pleased to have back to the podcast, Celia Boleyn and Ben Haddad with us today to share their thoughts on what might unfold and what that might mean for France and the international community. Welcome back to the show. For those who um, I think our listeners are both familiar, but Celia is a visiting fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. And Ben Haddad is the senior director of the Europe Center at the Atlantic Council. Um, Ben, I'm gonna start with you. You, along with Jim, are both uh, sitting in Paris. And can you, I guess I just, to hear a little bit about the mood in Paris in between these two rounds of voting, how would you describe um, where things stand running into this weekend's election? Yeah, so first we're a very interesting moment in uh, French politics. This is the day after uh, the big debate between Marine Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron, which is always a, a big moment in uh, French politics. It's uh, it's gloves off in France, it's three hours long, going from topic to topic. The candidates can speak to each other, can ask questions to each other, can interrupt each other. Uh, so you can you know very quickly see if someone's taking the lead or the upper hand. Um, and it seems that for the second time in a row after the one in 2017, uh, this time Emmanuel Macron uh, uh, dominated the debate uh, uh, mostly on, on content, on substance. Uh, you know, it started with uh, an issue that I think has been the core of the campaign, which is cost of living with rising food and energy prices, a lot linked to the war in Ukraine, um, and then moved to international issues, which have been really been central also, obviously, in the conversation, to Europe, to environmental uh, issues. And uh, Macron really uh, tried to first roll out his own uh, record and proposals, but really showed the contradictions uh, and limits of uh, Mrs. Le Pen's uh, platform. And I think he was, according to approximately two thirds of the French who were pulled, um, uh, after the debate, he was he was successful uh, in this. We still have two days of campaigning, Thursday and Friday. And then you have also something that's very specific to French politics, which is that on the last weekend, um, uh, the candidates, no one is allowed to talk about it anymore, not allowed to campaign, to go on TV. So it's sort of a moment of reflection. So you'll have a, a pause in, uh, in uh, the debate for Saturday and Sunday before uh, the vote on, on Sunday. Except uh, on Twitter. Well, it, Twitter's not supposed to be legal. The candidates or the uh, supporters of the campaign cannot tweet about uh, the, the campaign, and they would uh, they would be fined if they did. But citizens can, obviously. Um, and then we'll have the vote on on Sunday. 
it does look at this point, and I say this with utmost caution, but it does look, if you look at uh, uh, recent polling, that uh, Mr. Macron is the front runner for the election with about 55% of, uh, of the, the polling. Um, this would be quite a performance as he would be the first reelected president in about 15 years. And the first reelected president who also had an incumbent parliamentary majority reelected since Charles de Gaulle in 1965. Uh, the two presidents we've had in the Fifth Republic who were elected, re-elected, sorry, uh, Mr. Mitterrand, the socialist, and Chirac, a Republican, uh, were running against their own prime ministers because they had lost parliamentary majority. So it is a very high bar to be re-elected in France, but it does look like Mr. Macron is the, the front runner for it. And then I would just add one last point. Um, did We still have a lot of democratic questions uh, for France in the next few years. The two key opposition figures that have emerged, or I would say maybe maintain themselves in this election, far-right Marine Le Pen, who uh, sort of surprised a lot of people by still making it to the second round, even though I think if you had asked people two months ago, we've talked about Zemmour and other figures, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far-left uh, uh, figure uh, who came in just behind uh, Miss, Mrs. Le Pen. So, you know, that does uh, open a, a question of... Um, of uh, French about French democracy in the longer run, that the two uh, the two candidates are considered to be mostly uh, uh, running on uh, fairly uh, populist platforms. Do you think Celia, you can maybe jump on this one? Did um, Zamor's presence in this election has that helped Le Pen? For sure, uh, there's no question about it. It has helped Le Pen in the sense that uh, Le Pen had one strategy for this election. Uh, the strategy was to normalize herself. Um, Marine Le Pen, as a leader of the national rally, has long made uh, the, the realization that uh, she was facing an impossible task. The task being that she would be elected by more than uh, you know, half of uh, the French voters willing to go to the poll at any given time. And to be able to, to, to go above this threshold, you have to be um, acceptable enough for people either to vote for you or not vote against you. And what has happened for the longest time, uh, uh, at least since uh, 2002, when for the first time her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, made it to the second round of the election against Jacques Chirac and faced a large opposition, a systematic opposition that left him with uh, less than 20% of the vote in the second round, um, there's this realization that the far right cannot win in France because you have what we called a Front Républicain, a Republican front uh, of uh, voters from the right and the left and the center and who, who all oppose uh, the far right and vote in, in bulk against the far right. And Marine Le Pen has uh, understood that since 2012, but also even more in 2017 when she made it to the second round and ended up with a better score than her father, but still only 34% of the vote. Ever since this moment, she knew that her only strategy forward was normalization, acceptability. And she has worked on this uh, very strongly. I must say to her success, uh, she might not be able to, to go above the 50% because as uh, Ben pointed out, uh, probably in the debate yesterday, she has still demonstrated quite a high level of incompetence on many topics. 
um, a lack of mastery of general uh, issues, but also uh, still some very radical element in her uh, platform. But still, you know, she's getting closer and closer to this threshold. And uh, to to be able to be on the other side of this threshold, she got she gained from uh, the the um, the the candidacy of Eric Zemmour, who was sort of a, uh, you know, a sort of primary candidate against her for the far right, came out as an insurgent last summer, declared in the fall of 2021, and really ran on a deeply far right uh, campaign, activating the far right voter base, and, and by doing that, attracted elements not only of within voters, but also within her own party, down to uh, Marine Le Pen's niece, Marion Maréchal, who's a darling of the far right, who flocked to Zemmour because he was representing so, sort of the pure version of the far right, closer to Jean-Marie Le Pen. But when he did that, he sort of, one, activated the base, and second, helped again her normalization because she was not what he was. She was you know, a different species. And so at the time when uh, the far right sort of ended with its own uh, internal primaries and, and voters decided to pick, to pick uh, Marine Le Pen rather than Eric Zemmour, believing she had higher chances, she ended with a substantial number of voters in the first round, more than 23% of the vote, which is pretty, uh, which is higher than in, in 2017. And it means that you know, Zemmour only got 7%, but those 7% are highly, you know, highly likely to flock to her. And uh, basically, she's made it to the second round without having to, to rally her own troops, which makes her, I think, a stronger candidate this time around. At this point, it it is still probably not sufficient for her because some of the the most radical element of her platform are, are still very visible. She normalized as a candidate, not as um, you know, not as a political platform. Uh, so she might, she will still face elements of the Republican front. I know Jim has a question. He had a two finger, but I'm going to be a bully and jump in just to ask a really quick follow up question. I think I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true, that Le Pen beat Macron with voters under sixty. Is that true? I believe that's not exactly so. Um, so, so that would be in, in in vote intentions for the second round. I don't know, but right. I guess is there <laughs> no is there so the, a the, demographic the, difference between who Le Pen is really appealing to versus Macron, and can you talk a little bit about that? So, uh, if I may, uh, of what I understood from the first round, which is quite interesting, because these are votes that have been uh, already expressed and not just intentions. Uh, older voters voted highly for Macron, so he is still attractive um, uh, to uh, older voters, not only uh, some of them uh, who are more educated or wealthier uh, for some sort of sociological reasons, but also out of a rejection of uh, the far right or the far left. They are more conservative. They'd, they'd rather go with the centrist mainstream candidate that is Emmanuel Macron. Then the people uh, that are the target uh, voters for uh, Marine Le Pen where she did really well are the thought of uh, 34 to uh, 50, uh, sorry, 35 to 55 block. 
who are not young and not old, um, who are the generation uh, that is really had, had where she's made the, the, the biggest, um, uh, she has the biggest strength. I'm not sure whether she was higher than Macron, but that's clearly where her strength is. And then the youth vote in the first round really uh, either abstained in very high numbers or voted also in high numbers uh, for uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the third man in this campaign. And that's why in the this, in this second round, when, um, when both Macron and Marine Le Pen were trying to attract the abstainers and the youth vote, they would uh, go and, and focus on Mélenchon's, some of Mélenchon's uh, pet issues, uh, climate action mainly, but also a, a reform of democratic institutions. Some of these uh, elements where both of them, I think, uh, had uh, up until the first round really failed to address. And so they were seeking for these, that, that's where the reserve is. Jim, you've waited patiently. Oh, well, that was a great question. I'm glad you bullied your way in. It was, uh, uh, it, it was an important question. And I thought what I would do is just give you um, my, my view from watching this as an American in Paris. And I will say that it, and my, my view is very much through a soda straw because I don't read French and I'm not here uh, to, um, to, to do campaigning like Ben is or to, I, I am here to vote, but, but they've turned me back. So I couldn't, I couldn't vote with my passport. But, uh, but I thought I would just give you my view and see what you all think, see how wrong I am on this. I really, I saw some of the debate, a lot of it, well, some of it last night, and I was struck by how civilized it was and how it was, didn't have the circus that US presidential debates have. They, they um, you know, there were, and, and even, not, not even the Trump, uh, debate with Biden. I'm not even talking about that. That was that was one off. You could never do that. But I really felt the two, I mean, they really went at it with each other. Um, but it but it wasn't in a uh, uncivilized way. It, they weren't. Uh, they, they, I didn't have any cringe moments as I watched them go back and forth. Uh, the, the body language and the tone of voice. I know there was some there was some um, comment about uh, Macron during the during the debate, you know, had this rolling his eyes or arching his eyebrows or being elitist or whatever. But I, I think compared to what I have seen year after year after year after year in terms of presidential debates, this one was was a very serious and very civilized one. And I felt that that was uh, and then sophisticated. So I, 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 I felt that way in watching that. I, I'm not sure how you all feel, but that's what I came away with. And I think that really uh, uh, describes the entire process that I've seen. So I'm here teaching uh, my class and my, the kids in my class, um, a number of them are, are French, not all of them. Uh, and they are very much into this, uh, into the politics of it. But, but you don't see the circus atmosphere, people wearing hats and buttons and, um, and, and a lot of running around, uh, you know, um, doing silly stunts uh, for TV and, and this type of thing. I'm not talking about the candidates here, just their supporters. But one thing I did find really interesting is how ideologically driven this, this is. I mean, when my uh, students were talking about this, it's a graduate level, that this, communists, uh, you know, they were very wedded to an ideological approach. And they told me something that I was not aware of. There has been fighting in the streets on this. There have been some and, and Ben, I don't know what, what you've heard or seen, but I know at Sciences Po, um, the, the left uh, took over the, one of the entrances 
uh, and the right uh, wing came in and uh, started beating on them and the police came and there was tear gas. I mean, it's very interesting. I didn't even know. I was very upset with the students. I said, you got to tell me when these things happen. I love these things. So they promised to email me. There's something happening Saturday, Ben. I don't know if you know this was Saturday somewhere. So I, I find that this the passion and the 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 um, the intellectual aspect that leads to ideology and the seriousness um, I really can appreciate because I think in the U.S. and 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 it's just gotten a lot of silly in the U.S. a lot of silly uh, issues. I remember going back to George H.W. Bush and this thing about the Pledge of Allegiance. He would always be flogging the Pledge of Allegiance and how important it was. And it was like, you know what? Uh, and and it's, it just seems to me um, from watching this and interacting with my students, um, it's just a, a the, the approach here in France on the one hand is quite serious and the other hand is quite driven by ideology uh, in, 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 in a number of cases, maybe among the young. And I found that to be very interesting to the point of, of fighting in the streets. So, uh, I mean, I'm not, it's not widespread. I guess I would have seen it if it was, but it was happening. And, uh, and I found that, uh, that quite interesting. So how off am I in terms of my perspectives? I, I, Jim, it's so interesting to hear you describe this uh, with, with your American perspective in Paris. And I actually share a lot of your points. At first, on the civilized nature of the debate, it, it's so uh, funny your point because um, I was struck last night at the different perspectives from French Twitter and uh, foreigner Twitter uh, watching the debate. Uh, the French were as often very jaded, very critical and cynical and saying it was too long and it was boring and it was super technical. Uh, and then a lot of uh, foreigners were saying, this is really substantial. It's interesting. They're going at it. There's no uh, circus exactly to uh, your point. Look, my own feeling is that this is actually a pretty strong debate. Uh, they both confronted their platforms and perspectives, went into detail. Uh, Marine Le Pen uh, was, was trying not to uh, make the same mistake she did last time five years ago by being very aggressive and confrontational with Emmanuel Macron. She tried to roll out her uh, platform. I do think she came out really short and weak nonetheless, um, but but she, she did better than last time. Um, and, uh, and, and Macron, you know, both trying to uh, uh, focus on his own record, but I think clearly had worked a lot on Marine Le Pen's platform, trying to underline the, the contradiction. One of the reasons he focused so much on this, by the way, going to Zemmour, or back to Zemmour, is that clearly Marine Le Pen ran a sort of underground campaign before the first round. Uh, she was not very much in the media, nor her spokesperson. Uh, Zemmour caught a lot of the media attention because of the novelty of his campaign. He actually stole a lot of uh, her own supporters, some of her uh, uh, lieutenants, including her own niece, uh, to uh, to his campaign. And uh, as Celia said, by doing so, he sort of detoxified, de-radicalized Marine Le Pen, which has been her objective for the last 10 years. Um, but, you know, he was uh, so controversial, so divisive on issues uh, of linked to Islam, linked to French history as well, you know, claiming, for example, that Vichy and Pétain had protected French Jews during World War II. I mean, he's been so divisive and so toxic that he made Marine Le Pen almost acceptable. The, the shift that happened after the first round is the attention got back on Marine Le Pen. People are starting reading her program and there was a, a little bit of an oh shit moment, you know, and people read what she had to say about the European Union, what she had to say about Islam banning the hijab in the street. 
you know, uh, uh, a lot of measures on Europe that de facto would lead to either complete paralysis of the European Union or Frexit, uh, a reversal of alliance with France leaving uh, the uh, military command of NATO, leaving uh, any kind of cooperation with Germany to build an alliance with, with Russia, um, which is something that she confirmed even after the invasion and the aggression against Ukraine. So, uh, you know, behind her, uh, I would say more uh, a calm demeanor, uh, there is still a very radical uh, platform. And I think that's really one of the things that Macron has tried very systematically, very methodically to dismantle and to, to showcase in the last 10 days. And I think did so pretty successfully yesterday. But to your point is behind the technocratic nature of the conversation, you clearly had two different worldviews. You clearly had two different worldviews on identity, on Europe, on globalization. You know, um, on the one hand, you had a Marine Le Pen that basically sort of wants to withdraw France from globalization, from the European Union, a very sovereignist agenda. And Macron, uh, or even get rid of all the constitutional uh, rules that govern our democracy and rule only by referendum. Um, and I think Macron's main point, and you could see that line, the thread during the, the entire conversation was to say, look, globalization exists, Europe exists, the constitution exists. What we need is to give ourselves the instruments, the tools to be as successful as possible, as influential as possible within globalization, within Europe and with our own constitution. And I think you, you clearly had these sort of two different worldviews, one governing without any kind of limits uh, and the other one trying to frame France within the real world and be as, as successful as possible within that, that real world. And so you, you have two different ideological visions. And in this respect, you know, I do think, and maybe Celia will, will disagree a bit on this, but um, I think the result of this first round, which put again Macron and Marine Le Pen to the second round, uh, in which has shown the complete collapse of the Socialist Party and the Republican Party, which have governed France for the better uh, last half century, uh, confirms, I think, the intuition that Macron had when he created his platform En Marche in 2016, bringing together the center-left and the center-right, which is that the, the left-right divide was becoming obsolete in French politics, and that the real debates would be about Europe, would be about uh, you know open versus closed, liberal versus populist, however you want to frame this, but um, and and that the way the socialist and the Republican parties were structured did not reflect that real division because you had pro-Europeans and anti-Europeans, you had illiberal and liberals within each parties. And so they were, they were divided on, on fundamental issues and they were about to break, they were about to collapse. Whereas Marine Le Pen sort of had a coherent alternative to propose. So you needed to create a, a, a different poll that, re, that responds to what Marine Le Pen was. She was already on the rise before Macron, before he created En Marche. She was basically becoming the first party of France in 2014, 2015. And he created an ideological counterweight yeah, it's very similar to Remain and, um, and Brexit. You know, on the Remain side, you had Labour MPs and you had Conservative MPs, and, and which came together. And so I think Macron uh, sort of saw this, and the fact that it still remains the key dividing line, I think, confirms the uh, ideological intuition he had about where the country was. Celia, I want to come to you in one second on um, how the Ukraine crisis has played into the election. And there, I could, you know, one of the headlines or the thing that seems to have caught attention here in Washington is 
this headline of, you know, Macron saying, you speak to your bank when you speak to Russia. So we'll come back to that in a second. But Ben, I just wanted to ask one quick follow-up question because you're talking about, you know, the really interesting kind of substantive divides. Jim has talked about the fact that it was a pretty serious debate, not a lot of silliness and antics. But Ben, before we started recording, you noted that actually there has not been a lot of citizen engagement, you know, actually numbers tuning into the debate were quite low. Celia, you even referenced the high number of abstentions among the youth. So Ben, can you just talk a little bit about citizen engagement with this election and maybe what that reflects about, I don't know, the health of, of French democracy at the moment? You know, I don't have a clear answer to that. I think this is really a question that will have to be answered after that. I think we all have the feeling that um, something is a little bit uh, sclerotic and some a little off about the way institutions function, uh, that we need to introduce maybe a, a sort of dose of proportionality within the parliamentary elections, that uh, institutions have to be a bit more decentralized, a bit more um, representative, um, that you know, focusing so much on the presidential election every five years at the expense of other kinds of elections. Um, the five-year term has completely upended the way French politics function, right? It, it's actually not so much the five-year presidential term, I would say. It's the fact that you have the presidential election, and then two months later, you have the parliamentary election. So it's it's made it everything about the, the presidential election. Um, and, and, you know, and I think it created sort of disengagement from, uh, and, and a lot of people don't, and it's the same thing elsewhere, you know, the voter turnout is still stronger in France than it is in the UK or in the United States, for example, but it is dropping. And, and we've seen this, and the same thing for audience on TV, for the debate, for all kinds of political debates, we've seen uh, the uh, audience drop. And so, you know, I, I think when you look at young people today, um, they uh, they still care about issues very much so, and, and uh, Jim was saying so earlier, uh, but their levels of um, activism is different. Uh, they, they're activists very often through NGO causes, the environment, rather than traditional uh, party structures that maybe they find a little uh, stiff, a little centralized and, 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 and obsolete. So this is clearly a question that politicians will have to answer. And you know, how do you maybe empower citizens, empower different kinds of levels to take on responsibility outside of traditional political power? This is not something that the French are very good at. We've always had, you know, for the last 500 years, a very uh, centralized system and how we think about our country and how we think about governing. Uh, but clearly, I think this, this level of disengagement is sending a signal. So you feel free to, to tack on to what Ben said, but also, you know, would love to hear your thoughts. I mean, I don't know if part of the disengagement is also just the intense um, attention that's being paid to the Ukraine war um, and Russia's invasion there. I don't know if those, if you see those as related or not. Sure. You know, uh, we've been pondering about uh, on these questions for, for a long time now and commenting on all of this. It's very hard to actually disentangle everything that's happened in the past six months. We have seen political interest in the race back in the fall of 2021, but mostly out of the surge of, um, of Eric Zemmour as this sort of the French Trump, as some people call him, or this very uh, specific uh, candidates running on a, on a specifically radical platform that uh, raised media interest and 
And then uh, it, over time, it sort of um, uh, lost some of its interest. And you had a dual phenomenon at the beginning of 2022. First, you had the Omicron wave, which, you know, we, we tend to forget all these waves that come and go. But again, it was a giant wave that sort of um, overshadowed the media the any media conversation and and day-to-day -day lives for the French uh, also were once again upended as in many other uh, countries and so we have the French coming into this election already tired by two years of uh, COVID uh, including potentially intellectually tired politically tired there's a high disinterest because um, or, or maybe a, a, a desire for futility or, or to get interested in something else than just fighting over politics once more. Emmanuel Macron might have high, um, uh, sometimes for some people, high negatives on, on the type of reforms of policy he wants to implement. But by and large, he's the president of crises. So both in uh, the COVID crisis and now more recently in the Ukraine crisis, um, the polls demonstrate that the French trust him through crisis. He has demonstrated a steadiness and a capacity to uh, take decisions, to, to, to take the boat to the other side in, in a steady fashion that I think potentially will be the reason why he uh, will, one of the reasons why he would get reelected on Sunday. Uh, but so the second big crisis that sort of hit the campaign completely is of course, the war in Ukraine. Um, big, uh, starting at the end of February, you had a complete sort of uh, destruction of any uh, political conversation on anything apart from the war in Ukraine, obviously. Emmanuel Macron over two weeks jumped a good uh, seven points above uh, where, where he was uh, before. He attained a difference between him and the second one, which was still Marine Le Pen. You know, he was at 31% intention vote. She was at 18%. This gap had not been attained in 30 years uh, in uh, in presidential first rounds. So clearly, he, he, you know, everybody was expecting him to sail to his re-election, which had a function. And and there you have two phenomena. You asked me about Ukraine. Uh, I will not uh, dig into the geopolitics. Maybe Ben want, wants to do that, but um, it has, I think two sort of counter effect after the rally around the flag effect, after the fact that, again, Macron once again appeared as a good president to have during a crisis, you had uh, two, two phenomena. Um, one is uh, Marine Le Pen uh, smartly playing her cards at that precise moment compared to Eric Zemmour. Eric Zemmour in his uh, sort of anti-immigration obsession Within a few weeks, within a few days, started going on the media saying the war in Ukraine is a distraction. It distracts us from the real threat. The threat is from the south. The threat, the threat is immigrants. We should not care so much what's happening in Russia or Putin or Ukraine. This was completely off compared to the emotions and the, 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 the feeling of danger. Uh, expressed by the French. Marine Le Pen, uh, even though she has expressed pro-Putin, pro-Russia uh, sentiments for um, uh, years and years uh, now, including supporting the annexation of Crimea, including as uh, Macron referenced uh, getting uh, a loan uh, from a Russian bank in 2014 when she could not finance her party. And so that's why he calls Putin her banker. 
Yet still, at the beginning of the war, she understood the emotion and just denounced the aggression. Uh, she stayed more or less there, but uh, praised European unity and very unusually for her, praised Macron and not as himself, but as a president, as the function, we need to support the president. The president, he's the one dealing with this crisis. This is a moment of unity. This made her look extremely sort of presidentiable, like it, it's, a, it's a responsible behavior that helped her tremendously. And that's the moment when you see a shift between vote intentions of Zemmour flocking to Le Pen as these people potentially realizing she might be the one who can make it to the second round. The second thing that happened, and I'll stop quickly there, I, I believe both because Emmanuel Macron was so busy with his shuttle diplomacy between Ukraine and Russia, so busy with European uh, diplomacy, busy with everything. I think he himself and his camp have neglected during that time the campaign element. He has pushed, and every week he was hoping to declare, but uh, every week, you know, the, the, the news coming out of Ukraine were so horrendous and, and, and terrible. He declared at the very last moment with a sober, uh, you know, letter to the French, uh, he had barely any time to really campaign before the first round outside of a really huge uh, political rally. And then he did some strolls in, in, in different French places. But uh, I was struck at how little has been put not into uh, working on his image, which is pretty good, but working on his program and his vision. And uh, even down to his, you know, um, his slogan is all together, he, he, or with you was the first slogan. Now it's all together. These slogans of, you know, we are together, we are, but doesn't say where we are going. And I think one of the strengths of um, Emmanuel Macron in 2017 was, as Ben said, the novelty of his platform, the novelty of his understanding of politics, and the, uh, the capacity to sort of draw an optimistic future, some alternative future in which, you know, the French ended up believing in. This time around, it's more about re-electing re him as a serious candidate, etc. And he, ha he has failed, in my opinion, to really put forward a, a vision he has. It's a function of his personality. He knows every single detail of all his technical policies and sometimes have a hard time prioritizing. So he hasn't told the French really what are the big priorities. It ends up in the second round, he's done better. He's campaigned more and he's done better. But I think that's the real effect of Ukraine, probably potentially, you know, lacking some of the movement behind uh, um, and Macron and paradoxically not having so much of a negative impact on, on Le Pen. Oh, well, that, those were just great. That was just perfect. I, I wish I had all the insight that you guys bring to this. It's just amazing. There is a guy in my class who could give you a run for your money, but I mean, it was really good. But just a, just a couple of quick points. First one is I wanted to just give you a little story. We were we talked about this before we started recording, but to me it's an example of how the French election season and and how you all go about elections is different from us. And that is that on that Sunday of the first round election, so it's election day Sunday. Um, I was walking uh, down the street and I and I came upon uh, Eric Zamor walking down the street uh, wearing a red scarf and he had about three or four bodyguards and there was a woman with him, I don't know, his wife or someone. And uh, they just 
they walked uh, by me and then they walked into a cafe uh, and it was right by Dumago. I mean, they just, as if it was a normal Sunday. And in the US, it would have been motorcades. It would have been the secret service. They would have blocked all streets. It would have been a mess. Uh, but this was just, you know, and, and I noticed people on the sidewalk, they would, some people turned and looked, but most people just ignored him. So I just, I thought that was, you know, just normal. There, you know, election day in the United States, the candidates are, you know, they're huddled with their advisors in some hotel room watching TV. I mean, it's just, it just was very interesting. The second point is that um, there are some issues that the French share with us. And I found that very interesting. One of them is identity politics, what's really big here uh, to the point where it was sounded just like the United States, urban versus rural as well, that split. Um, you know, the people saying they're, they've been marginalized, no one listens to us, uh, kind of, of, of uh, disquiet. Um, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the next thing too, um, it'd be interesting to hear what you all have to say is that there's a, been a media empire that's grown up in France of, of a couple of moguls who are running a lot of the publications here. Uh, I don't know a lot about it, but, I, but it sounded like a bit like Fox News and um, and, and that kind of thing that we've had to deal with is, 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 has kind of sprung up here and was a player in the election. So I just, I throw that your way just for a comment. I will, I will tell the Americans that uh, in Washington, who are the only people who think about this, strategic autonomy was not a big issue. <laughs> I'm not sure I would even heard it during the campaign anywhere. But uh, so for Americans who thought that's what Macron would have been running on, it wasn't strategic um, autonomy. And um, and finally, I think what, what I found really interesting is, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, but it seems that there is a love-hate relationship uh, between the French people and, and, and who they elect as a, as a president or as a political figure. It seems that, that and I'm going to be really general here, and just you're going to have to, excuse me, but it seems that, that the French don't like to be told what to do by politicians. And so they'll elect somebody. But then the next day, they're not going to like them because uh, they're telling them what to do. And um, and so they will grow over time, the five years as a president, it will grow over time, this idea of wanting to get the guy out. Uh, and then then they'll get the guy out and they'll all vote for somebody. And then the next day, he'll start all over again. We don't like this guy because he's blah, blah, blah. So I just find that interesting. And I didn't know if that's a real thing or is it just my own generalizations. But But I throw those comments your way. Let me, let me you're pick stunned. Up on, I can on, tell on, you're stunned. Let me pick up on a few of them. On the relationship that the French have with their leaders and their politicians, um, I completely agree. I mean, look, the, the bottom line is uh, the French like to have a king, but they also like to remind the king that they can be headed. And, and that's really the crux of our history. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you have a very presidential centralized system. Uh, when the president becomes too normal as Francois Hollande was, uh, you know, too accessible. The French hate it. They do like their uh, president to be regal, to keep some form of uh, distance, but then they like to be able to insult the president in the street and to be able to protest and create a direct relationship with uh, the king. And that's, you know, sort of uh, the way our institutions were built. Tocqueville is better known for democracy in America, but he also wrote one of the best books on the French Revolution, which is a more of a, not a history book, but it's more a book of, a, of theorizing the French Revolution. It's called The Old Regime and the Revolution. And, and, and basically his 
uh, thesis is that the revolution did not really happen, did not really change much because the process that was started before was administrative centralization and the state becoming really the, the, the builder of French national identity. And that continued afterwards, not the same people, but the same kind of uh, centralization uh, that you had seen since Louis XIII and Richelieu, even before Philippe Auguste or Louis XI. And, uh, and so you, you still have this, and this is why, you know, people like to make fun of our tradition of protest and strikes, but it's completely rational. It's if you are in a system where you don't have, like in the United States, governors that are powerful, where you don't have a Congress where the, uh, uh, the opposition can still block legislation and constantly negotiate with the White House and the majority, then your only rational recourse is to take the streets and establish a direct balance of power with uh, the leader. And this is the way our uh, institutions function. And, it, and it's interesting because, you know, I, uh, I'm i gonna contradict myself a little bit in what I said just a few minutes uh, earlier when I said that we have to think about our institutions and reforming them and, and, and breathing a little bit more openness uh, to them. Yet at the same time, uh, we have to be cautious when we do it. Different countries have different cultures, histories, and traditions. Um, and uh, we've had parliamentary systems that were much more proportional in our history. Uh, one was the, um, the Third Republic. It led to the collapse of the country in 1940 against uh, uh, Germany. The, uh, the, the second time was the Fourth Republic, which led to the collapse of the country in 1958 and almost a civil war over Algeria. Uh, the goal uh, was uh, his genius in building the institutions of the Fifth Republic was that he really synthesized French history. Uh, the institutions of the Fifth Republic that he, he drafted with uh, his right-hand man, Michel Debré, um, was really about, um, you know, it was fully democratic, it was fully Republican. He had come from a Catholic monarchist right-wing family, but he was, a, he was deeply a Republican and, and a Democrat, but he also knew the, the tradition of the monarchical tradition that his family came from uh, and that had to be synthesized with the Republican institution. And so this is why we have, we have those. They're very imperfect, but they also correspond to our history to a large extent. And so, you know, uh, our politicians tend to be uh, more unpopular than they are in the United States. Uh, it's harder, there's a higher bar to get a second term than there is in, uh, in the United States. But the, at the end of the day, you know, despite what every swan, everyone likes to say about Macron and his personality and the fact that the French may or may not like him, the fact that he is maybe on the verge of being reelected, I think, speaks pretty highly of his of his record um, on, especially on economic issues, on the fight against uh, uh, unemployment, which when I was, you know, a, a kid was the number, always the number one issue in France, and now has almost disappeared from uh, the conversation in the last uh, five years. So I think, you know, in, in this respect, it's interesting to, to look also at, at, his, at his success uh, if, if, if he is to be reelected on Sunday. This has just been such a fun conversation and I feel so much smarter now than when we started recording. But um, I have one last question and I know if you wanna kind of do a short answer to it, which so Ben, you just took us backwards, which was amazing, but just to look forward. And we'll cautiously assume that Macron wins this weekend. Um, what should we expect um, in the next term? Anything significantly different, more of the same, any radical departures? Kind of just give us your quick take on kind of what to expect looking forward, assuming that 
um, he does come out ahead. Should should I go? Sure, Celia, why don't you start and then Ben? Maybe Ben, I, I will let you uh, more on the substance if, if you want, if you have a, a, a better idea of the, the platform itself. I just want to caution one point and also follow up on what Ben just said, which was uh, brilliantly explained, um, that um, Emmanuel Macron is, is likely uh, to be reelected, and he you will have a, a period of um, the politics will not stop on Sunday because we have legislative elections coming up in June. Uh, one of the uh, elements is that uh, he will have to uh, gain a majority of um, uh, a, a majority to 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 be able to implement uh, some of his uh, project and uh, some of his adversary. Uh, including Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the third man of this race, will try and gather as much of uh, a voting block as they can uh, to weigh on the, the future government. Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, including, said that he was running for the third round, the third round being him trying to be prime minister of Emmanuel Macron uh, by um, imposing a new majority uh, at the French National Assembly. At this point, this is highly improbable um, just because the numbers are not there, but clearly the intent that politics would continue uh, is uh, behind this uh, conversation. And if politics will continue, Jim, you pointed out to some of the you know, violent element of politics as well. There is as part of a risk that uh, out of this uh, popular expression for re-election for Emmanuel Macron, the discontent, discontent element of the population will continue to protest in the street. Some of them have already called for major strikes at the first sight of a reform. You know, Emmanuel Macron intends to reform the pension system. They might take to the street, street as a, a protest to that. And the legitimacy of a re-election is strong, but sometimes the sort of honeymoon period is even shorter than in the first uh, instance when you get elected in the first place. So there's uh, always, you know, these uh, are uh, uncertain times ahead in terms of keeping the co cohesiveness of, um, of France. Um, we, we can expect uh, Macron to advance smartly about it, but you would have this first period between now and the legislative election um, where politics will continue um, on a highly uh, intense basis. And after the legislative election will open the moment for policy reform and so potentially also uh, protest and, 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 and blockades uh, taking on to the streets as well. Ben? Uh, first, I, I agree. I mean, the election is not over. You have a third and a fourth round in France and it will be the parliamentary uh, elections. Without them, Macron does not have a, a majority to govern and then it's a completely different system. So uh, clearly he will be focused on this and I think he will be focused in the, 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 elect, the parliamentary elections are in two months. So the next two months will be, I think, crucial for him to build a new momentum uh, with probably a new team in government, uh, you know, pushing forward on uh, the environmental agenda that he laid out also in the last uh, few days, which I think, you know, is some somewhat of a of a, a, um, an area where he is seen as uh, as not having been as strong as he could have in the first round, uh, where he's expected from a lot of the Mélenchon and left-wing voters. So I think he'll really try to uh, to push on this. Um, and then, you know, look, the I would say the, the core pillar of uh, Macron's uh, agenda and political identity, I think, is the European Union. And there was still 
at the core of the conversation yesterday with uh, Marine Le Pen. And of course, this election happened during a war in the European continent at a time when a lot of the issues that France has been uh, putting forward in the last few years, the rearmament of Europe, the question of energy independence, um, the question of you know, te technological dependence and norms, you know, have been really core to this this conversation. Jim, I, I I disagree slightly with you saying that he did not campaign on strategic autonomy. Of course, he didn't use that very technical term that only us in think tanks uh, enjoy. <laughs> but but Europe clearly is has been core to the campaign. It's always been core to his uh, to his vision. And so, you know, I think uh, I I expect him to go to Ukraine pretty early uh, if he is uh, reelected to make maybe make. Announcement, and then the question will be, you know, what role can France play uh, in the European Union as we see these major tectonic shifts? Germany uh, rearming, but also being caught in a in a very intense and complicated debate about its European and and strategic identity. Sweden and Finland probably joining uh, NATO. Uh, the, the UK playing this role. So, you know, I think it will be a really interesting um, a moment for him uh, to try to seize leadership in in Europe on these issues. Well, thank you, thank you for that. I um, I, I agree that um, that the, certainly the EU and Europe play big and are core elements of Macron's policy. Uh, that's for sure. It would have been funny if he did talk about strategic autonomy. I think Washington would have been spinning on his head. But um, let me uh, we're 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 towards the end now. So I'm going to just throw one more question at you guys because I because I found it an interesting. Um, uh, an interesting part of your of your electoral process uh, coming looks like a virus coming from the United States, and this is what I, I mentioned earlier about kind of this media empire. Uh, some of the major papers and some of the major TV stations uh, becoming very ideologically driven by owners. Um, the way that we've had to deal with uh, that in in Washington in the U.S. and and not that France hasn't. You know, I've got a stack of papers here from the. 1800s, uh, which I collect uh, from France, and they were quite ideological uh, and driven by their owners. But um, but but kind of the Fox News uh, phenomena, I guess, is is now part of your system. Am I right on that, or is it not quite? Um, Celia, you want to start with you, and then Ben. Sure. Uh, yes. No. You're right. Uh, this has there's an intent there uh, to create a sort of conservative. Uh, ecosphere that we have seen, ecosystem that we have seen uh, emerge in the US and some of the uh, financing comes uh, from uh, top, um, you know, um, uh, top uh, um, uh, billionaires in France, including mostly Vincent Bolloré, who is the owner of uh, CNews and uh, now Europe 1. And so he will have TV, radio. He has, uh, I think, uh, Journal du Dimanche, uh, pre written press, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, there is a there's a clear intent to provide a sort of conservative perspective. Um, that is uh, highly critical of uh, Macron and, and the government, but also uh, bringing sort of new topics that you would call in the US culture war topics uh, that are, that and, and, and a lot of it has been um, supporting uh, Eric Zemmour's campaign in particular um, back in the, in the fall of last year. Um, this, however, remains, if you look at uh, audience numbers, if you look at uh, sort of influence, political influence of these, uh, these movements, they're still minimal, actually. Um, they have shifted partly the debate, heightened it in some ways. Um, some of it, um, 
the more conspiracy theorists uh, ad advocates have taken to the social um, networks as well. I just want to point out the funny um, sort of uh, elements that I was monitoring the sort of the far far right Twitter, where you could see before the first round stories about the risk of fraud coming from Dominion, which is hilarious for us because Dominion has, doesn't mean anything this uh, uh, supposedly, um, you know, a uh, company in charge of electoral voting machines, but the, the French don't vote with uh, electronic voting machines, so it makes no sense, but uh, you can see that um, they are, and I, I'm not conflating all of this, just to be clear, the conservative ecosystem is one thing, and then the conspiracy theories is another, but uh, clearly you, you have, uh, you have outside influence also trying to stir up the debate for the most part. However, just to finish on this, we've seen that the, this election is still gained in the center, actually. Le Pen, if she ever was to win, it would be because she mainstreamed herself, not because she radicalized herself. This is a fundamental difference to this day with the American system. You're not yeah. only agitating the base, you have to win you know, the majority of the French voters. And that's a that's a great point. That's an important point. Ben, we've got about a minute and a half. Can you do a quick lightning response and then we'll bring this to a close? No, uh, not much to add, actually. We do have uh, CNews and a TV channel that's really uh, uh, drawing uh, from uh, uh, Fox News. And we have a more and more polarized uh, uh, political conversation. If you look at the poll of the debate yesterday, 59% of people thought Macron had won it, 39% Le Pen. That's basically the polls in the country for Le Pen and, and Macron. So I am worried that we're seeing this trend of uh, not only polarization, but uh, ideological bubbles where people don't really speak to yep. uh, each other. Um, and that's something I see you know, among my friends, among the people I talk to. Uh, it's becoming harder and harder to find folks that don't vote for the same people as you do. So it's a, it's, it's a risk. Um, I think thankfully on really major issues such as uh, vaccines, uh, despite a strong anti-vax movement in France, we've managed to have very high uh, proportion of uh, French people getting vaccinated. Uh, so it's not become as, as partisan and polarized uh, as it has been in the United States, for example. But I think that's clearly something that is uh, uh, threatening uh, in the long run French democracy, as, as I think all of our democracies in this yeah. information space. Well, thank you so much. You guys have just provided tremendous insight. I uh, I just love it. So I salute you both. Uh, and let's see what happens on Sunday. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.